Today's show is sponsored by Brooklyn, and Brooklyn makes my favorite sheets, comforters, loungewear, and towels. Get 10% off and free shipping when you use the promo code REAL at brooklinen.com. Hey guys, welcome to the Real Life Podcast, where we talk about exactly that every single week. Real life, which means some episodes might be about a fight we just had, some episodes might be about potty training since we have two toddlers, and some might be about eschatological realism because I love thinking and talking about deep theological things, and maybe we'll talk about all three of those in one episode. But we hope the show feels like hanging out in our living room with us, drinking a cup of coffee as we discuss faith and family and culture and Jesus. Me and my lovely wife, Alyssa, are your hosts, and don't hesitate to hit us up or reach out on social media to say hi or comment on this week's episode. Enjoy. Chapter 7. A Day of Resistance Because I'm Back to the Future obsessed, the greatest movie of all time, by the way, and this isn't in the book, but just to prove to you guys listening to the audiobook that I'm obsessed, I think I have a Back to the Future poster in my office. I have the special out-of-commission DeLorean Lego set. I have a couple Marty and Doc minifigures. I have a couple of Marty and Doc like collectible dolls and a bunch more. My goal in life is to get a DeLorean, check back in maybe a decade or two. But because of this, I'm constantly thinking of times and dates in history where I'd use the DeLorean to go back to. Famous moments, riveting moments, interesting moments. One of those times and places I'd love to go to would be the little town of Świdnik, Poland on February 5th, 1982. If I'd hopped out of the DeLorean on the main street that day, I'd see people grocery shopping, picking up mail, running errands, and greeting each other. In other words, everything would be completely normal except for one detail. Everyone would be carrying around their TV. One guy would be pushing a wheelbarrow with his TV in it. A mom over here would be walking with a stroller with the TV where the baby normally goes. Others just carrying their TVs with both arms as they do their errands, plopping them down at the counters whenever they stop into a store and take a break. This was an enormous and collective act of resistance, a deeply subversive act akin to Daniel and his friends when they said they would not bow in the Old Testament. Now why? In the early 1980s in Poland, there was a clash of the communist authorities who were in power since the Second World War and a popular movement of striking workers called Solidarity. Then, on December 13, 1981, the authorities attempted to crack down as hard as possible by putting tanks on the streets and stopping Solidarity for good. Hundreds were arrested and dozens were killed. But this only invigorated the movement. Then the strikers began to boycott the TV news, which was at that point essentially fiction and propaganda only. But a boycott of the news itself didn't hold enough power to embarrass the government or make them relent, so everyone decided to actually go on an evening walk exactly at the same time the news was on and with their TVs in tow. And guess what? It worked. It was a quiet and yet very public way to say, this whole system is a sham and none of us want any part of it. It was an enormous picture of an entire community publicly embarrassing the government's propaganda news and simply stating with their walk and their TVs and their shopping carts, none of us care for this or want this and we refuse to watch. As one supporter of the movement later said, 
If resistance is done by underground activists, it's not you or me. But if you see your neighbor taking their TV for a walk, it makes you feel part of something. An aim of dictatorship is to make you feel isolated. Shvidnik broke the isolation and built confidence. It went from being a private and individual act to a public communal act, which opened the floodgates and enabled others to say, I'm not alone in resisting this government. We are strong together. At its core, it was an everyday, ordinary act of resistance, and it turned Shvidnik and Poland upside down. The take your TV for a walk out in public right when the news is airing idea spread throughout the entire country and absolutely infuriated the government. And yet, they felt powerless to retaliate since going for a walk was not a crime. That's why, when I first heard this story, it immediately shot to the top of my bucket list for the DeLorean time travel moment. But second, I couldn't help but think about the similarities this has to Sabbath. See, Sabbath is an ordinary act of resistance. In our Western culture, that constantly bends the need to the gods of productivity, work-based identity, and speed, Sabbath comes as a fist in the air every week saying, no, we are not what we do, we are not what we have, we are not what we can buy. The way we topple the empire of workaholicness and individualism and burnout speeds is by walking around town every week with our TV of rest under our arms. Put it in our wheelbarrow or your stroller, but keep walking. Because personally, I don't think there is anything more needed right now in our culture and simultaneously incredibly misunderstood by religious and non-religious alike than the Sabbath. We need to learn to cease, to stop. We need to learn to have a day of delight once a week. We need a day to make sure we are still hearing the proper music, dancing into that rhythm, and a day to make sure the notes and our lives still align. Origin Story When we talk about Sabbath, we are often basing our ideas on some weird cultural or religious picture. But let's go back to the source. Sabbath was created in the beginning, just not in the way we think. When we open up the first page of Scripture, we are immediately struck with a deeply beautiful and poetic narrative about origins, which are important. By the way, just ask Marvel Comics. We need them to properly anchor our understanding and the future. Now, some quick backstory. We often miss all the little breadcrumbs that set up Genesis as an alternative origin story to the rest of the stories in the ancient Near East. The writer of Genesis was clearly playing off of other themes and ideas at the time, saying a few deeply subversive things. See, in other literature of the day, there was the idea that there was actually many gods, and these gods reigned over various things like the rain, the food supply, birth, and so forth. There wasn't really a concept of one god over all. So other creation texts usually centered on a specific place or temple for that god to reside in. And when each god's dwelling place was built, two things would always happen. One, an icon or an image would be placed in the middle of the temple as a visible representation of this god. Two, the god would be invited to then take up residence in that temple. Very much like an inaugural celebration, where it's a grand opening party and you stop the normal work rhythm to celebrate. The subversive and scandalous thing about Genesis is that it follows the same framework of the origin stories of its day, but completely turns them on their head. It says, yes, God has a temple, but it's not a building. It's the earth. The building of the six days and no physical structure allude to the fact that this God is not regional. 
He is actually over all, and the entire earth is his dwelling place. Then, instead of statues made of gold and silver placed in this temple, he makes images of himself wrapped in skin and bone and flesh and places them in the garden. They are the divine icons placed on earth as physical representations of this God who created all things. And then the final day of creation makes a lot more sense. Quote, by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Genesis 2, 2. All has been created and spun into existence. The images have been breathed into and placed in the temple, which is earth. Now what? It's simple. Let's party. It reminds me of July 15, 1999, the day my beloved hometown sports team, the Seattle Mariners, opened up a beautiful new ballpark called Safeco Field. That inaugural game was set apart. I still remember the joy and celebration of it all and seeing Ken Griffey Jr., the most iconic baseball player of all time, stepping into the batter's box for the first time. While it was a celebration, it was also an invitation to fill the building. The new stadium was empty while under construction for years, but when the inaugural game happened, it was about filling with fans and players and with the joy and spirit of baseball. So when we talk about Sabbath, it's about the deep sense of joy and filling and celebration. It's set apart and different. It is the day of rest, but not in the sense of let's sit there and eat potato chips all day and do nothing. At its core, Sabbath is an invitation to fill the earth with God's presence. That first Sabbath is when God took up residence in his creation. And so we set apart a day to remember that and ask him to come in a special way again and again and again every single week. Now, imagine how Adam felt on that first Sabbath. Humans were fashioned on the sixth day, which means when Adam first opened his eyes, he was looking at Sabbath and rest. Sabbath was his baseline, his first moment, his first memory. God's rest and celebration and filling of the earth is Adam's very first moment. And only then he could go work properly and live into the vocation God had given him. God's perspective was to work and then rest. But Adam's perspective was to know rest and then work. Too many of us are trying to be like God when we are Adam instead. Only when we truly know rest first and celebration can we know how to work and enjoy it properly. We work from rest, not to get rest. When I think of Adam and that first day of Sabbath, the word delight comes to mind. Sabbath is a day of delight, and it always has been from the echo of the very first moment. But then in Scripture, the Sabbath disappears for a bit after that. The spirit of it seems to fall away once the curse falls. Work becomes a grind and only produces thorns and thistles. And God wants to fill the earth with his presence, but human choice and rebellion are actively pushing him back. Shalom is broken and decay is here, and now delight is not the default. So delight has to be fought for, wrestled for, wrangled from the very hands of the curse. It's no strange reason why the writer of Hebrews says, quote, strive to enter that rest. It takes work to not work in our culture. It takes effort to cultivate a spirit of rest. But how do we practically do that? What's up, guys? I want to take a quick break to tell you about one of this week's sponsors, and that is Brooklinen, a long-standing sponsor on the Real Life Podcast. We love them. 
they are awesome. And here's why, because basically they make luxury, incredible, awesome sheets, beddings, towels without all the luxury markup. And that's why we love them. Uh, they even like to say they're the internet's favorite sheets. And I actually agree because they have over 50,000 five plus star reviews. They were founded in early 2014 by husband and wife, Vicky and Rich. So it's a really cool story too. Um, and their mission is to just make you comfortable um, without all the crazy luxury markup. And that's why they're really awesome. So they want to hook you guys up. If you like softness, comfort, essentials, uh, Brooklinen has it all. So you can get 10% off and free shipping anytime when you shop at brooklinen.com and use the promo code REAL. And they're so confident in their product, by the way, their sheets, their comforters, their towels, they come with a lifetime warranty, which is kind of crazy. Uh, and you can get 10% off and free shipping when you go to brooklinen.com. Again, that's B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com and use the promo code REAL. Holy days. Our family is pretty Christmas obsessed. If you've ever seen Christmas with the Cranks, we are essentially Dan Aykroyd. We put up our Christmas tree in October. We start playing Kenny G music in July, which no joke, guys, if you're listening to this, I'm recording this a month before the book comes out. So it's September 2019. And guess what? I'm not joking. We were listening to Christmas music last night. Don't shame me. Don't judge me. And mint hot cocoa actually never makes its way out of the rotation. We drink it all year around. We love Christmas. It's easily the best cultural holiday in America. While other holidays are just one day, Christmas is a lifestyle. The reason I like Christmas so much is that it's one of the only holidays we celebrate as a culture that does extend over an entire season and not just one day. And it somehow still has retained a lot of its power to recenter us so we slow down and spend time with family. Christmas is magical. And that's also why I think Christmas is the closest thing we have in our culture to what the true heart of Sabbath truly is. So many of us see Sabbath as like a dental appointment, something we might have to do and something we'd all say is good for us, but really isn't that enjoyable, and in many cases, dreadful. But it's much more like Christmas, a high point of celebration and delight that isn't perfect by any means, but something that draws us to something greater. I don't think there is a better way to understand Sabbath than to think about it like Christmas, except you get to have many Christmases 52 times a year. How epic is that? First, do you know our word holiday comes from the Old English version of the word holly day, which means holy day. And what day is more holy than the Sabbath? One of the Ten Commandments is to observe the Sabbath and keep it holy. It is literally a commanded day that is holy. The way we see holidays in America is the heart of holy days and feasts, which is why I always find it funny when one of the first things out of people's mouth when you start talking about Sabbath is, well, do we have to? To which the answer is, of course not. But do you have to go to Disneyland? Do you have to watch Back to the Future? Do you have to eat at a three Michelin star luxury dinner that someone else paid for? Of course not. But you also realize you don't ever answer those questions with, ugh, do I have to? You get to. They are treats and blessings. And I'm sure most of us have never asked that question with Christmas. Do we have to celebrate Christmas this year? If my kids were asking me that question, I'd realize they probably don't get what Christmas is or we've done an exceptionally bad job at explaining it. What better invitation than to think of a certain holiday like Sabbath is so important we actually get to celebrate it not once a year, but 52 times a year. Let's keep thinking about the similarities between Sabbath and Christmas. First, many people have the day off of work. 
If you're listening to this and you've ever had to work on Christmas, thank you. You sacrificed so much for so many of us, and we are unbelievably grateful. But it's a cultural value to not work on Christmas. In fact, it's one of those rare days you don't expect others to be available. Stuff shuts down. It's a special time of slowing down to prep many things days in advance so that the day itself can be special, to start the celebration the night before, and to have intentional family time to feast and to celebrate and to rest and slow down. As a culture, we have set apart that day as holy. But notice how in setting it apart as holy, we don't just sit somber all day. We don't prostrate ourselves in prayer the entire 24 hours. So it's always frustrating that with any special days that have religious overtones, we immediately think boring, burdensome, hard, or too much pressure. But holy means party. Just ask Jesus. His first miracle was at a wedding when he turned water into wine, and he was always describing the kingdom as a feast or a celebration. We don't do a bunch of work on the Sabbath. Anyone who has busied themselves on Christmas usually regrets it. But we also don't veg out and watch football all day. We know that misses the mark too. Similarly, we observe every single one of the cultural values listed above for Christmas, but also for Sabbath. Our family has been practicing an intentional Sabbath for over three years now, and I can say unequivocally that it has transformed our family. It has saved us at times. While some like to say they keep the Sabbath, we know that the Sabbath actually keeps us. It keeps us grounded, rested, and filled. It also keeps us resisting in a countercultural way. We're aware of the hypnotic and alluring pace of our culture that is so antithetical to the way of Jesus. The Sabbath is included in the Ten Commandments, which are about living within God's good design. It's not some arbitrary command. It's simply a fact of the universe. You don't have to, but then your life may not go as well for you as it was designed. Sabbath and work, rest, rhythm is the ultimate music. You don't have to dance, but if you sit it out, you're saying goodbye to an awful lot of joy and blessing. Standing along the side of the room with your hands folded might feel most comfortable or least vulnerable, but we also know it isn't very memorable. No one leaves a dance thinking, wow, I'm really glad I was afraid to dance all night and just stood against the wall looking at my phone. But here's the tricky part. We've inverted our values so much that we've come to believe it'll go well for us if we don't Sabbath. I see posts on Instagram from some motivational life coach bragging about how little sleep he gets. It's all about the hustle, he says. Hashtag never sleep. You can sleep when you die. I like to say, if you don't sleep, you will die. If not physically, then for sure emotionally, relationally, and spiritually. We honor and worship and value workaholics in our culture. Work is everything. It's one of the core places we find our identity. While the philosopher Descartes is famous for saying, I think, therefore I am, I think America's mantra is, I produce, therefore I am. Think about the Ten Commandments. Are they followed in our culture? I mean, somewhat, I guess, implicitly. If I cheat on Alyssa, I'd probably lose everything. If I kill another person, I'd go to prison. But if I don't Sabbath, I'd actually probably have a bigger business, more assets, more money, more accolades, more followers, and more to show for my work. We live in a rigged system that's considered the norm in our culture. You get rewarded and actually rewarded greatly if you don't Sabbath. But just like the coal mining industry, you can extract a lot from the earth in a way that reaps immeasurable blessing, like when coal brought levels of power and energy never seen before, only to get a hundred years later and realize how much it scorched the earth, 
depleted it of its resources, and left the earth to die. Short-term gain, yet a huge net loss. And thinking work is your identity or some badge of honor is no different. Shaping the Sabbath. Admittedly, Christmas isn't the perfect analogy for everyone. It can hold baggage from childhood, and it can highlight losing someone close to you, or it can be a particularly heavy burden for those who are responsible for the gift buying, the menu planning, and the pressure for it all to be perfect. I've heard more than a few stories from people who wish they could opt out of it all. But even when we hear stories like that, we know the problem isn't with Christmas itself. The problem comes from broken relationships or painful choices. The problem is that somehow we started missing the mark. And the reason we want to opt out is precisely because we haven't actually been living in it at all. The same is true with Sabbath. I've had a few conversations with folks who want to understand the allure of it, but then they immediately tense up as they feel the pressure. Isn't that just another day to plan and prepare for? Well, in some sense, yes. But again, if it constantly feels like that, we can safely say the mark is being missed. Just because it takes extra preparation does not mean it's a burden. It reminds me of our second Christmas with our kids. There were numerous presents under the tree for Kinsley and Cannon from all our friends and family, and we had only made it maybe two minutes before Kinsley started to melt down. Isn't this supposed to be one of the more joyful moments of childhood? It was pretty clear she was overwhelmed. So much stuff. And I don't think adults are much different, by the way. We just don't read the signs well, but that's another talk for another day. Alyssa and I looked at each other and thought, well, that didn't work very well. So the next year, we decided to be much more intentional. We set a few ground rules and were creative with shaping the holiday to serve our values instead of the other way around. So we started a no-toy policy, they have enough, and asked family and friends to get much more practical things like pajamas or an experience like a pass to the aquarium instead. One fun thing we did one year was ask family and friends to get one book for each kid, but not just any book, one that their family can't live without with a special note on the inside cover. And then we then added up the presents and Kinsley had six to open total. So what we did is we started opening one present per day beginning on December 20th. And guess what? It's now one of our family's favorite traditions. It's magical. The kids are beyond thankful for that one gift they open every day. They have more time to experiment with it, enjoy it, use it, show us, and all around be more joyful and content with it. Instead of overwhelm, we've seen it create a sense of gratitude in the kids. It's way more meaningful. Why am I telling you this story? Because imagine if Alyssa and I had looked at each other on that very first Christmas and said, this is terrible, let's cancel Christmas. That'd be ridiculous. The issue wasn't Christmas. The issue was the situation and how we were going about it. The issue was our feeling freedom to craft an entire day exactly how we wanted it to and then extract the most life and delight out of it. So we made some changes. And every Christmas, we modify it a little bit more. How can we center this holiday on giving, not consuming? How can we spend the whole month reminding ourselves of the beautiful expectation of our King Jesus? What are some fun rituals we can build on or create with the kids? And that is Sabbath. You don't cancel Sabbath because you might have tried really hard to make a perfect day one time and it was terrible. You just move on and realize that was probably too much pressure or you were sick or you had a bad day before. All normal things and you keep improving. But here's where I think Sabbath is even better than the Christmas analogy. With a weekly Sabbath, you get 52 tries a year. And the year after that, same thing, again and again and again. And like any rhythm, you don't just start over. 
Every little thing builds on another. That's why there might be some incredible Christmas traditions in your family, like walking little gift bags up to the fire station on Christmas morning or seeing the neighborhood Christmas lights in your PJs. Those traditions are magical not just because you did them once, but because you did them over and over, stacking on one another like one huge memory mountain. It's compound interest. You are playing the long game. You don't get rich off of compound interest because you put in $5 today. You get rich because you put in $5 every week for 80 years. Imagine the richness and depth and meaning and memories you can stack on such an incredible day if you have 52 reps a year. And imagine how much pressure that takes off your shoulders because you always have next week and the week after and the week after. A few of our close friends and mentors have been observing and practicing Sabbath for 17 years. Can you imagine how anchored a life must feel if you party and rest and cease and celebrate every seven days for almost two decades? Stop trying to be perfect and start getting reps. And guess what? By going for reps, not perfection, you'll actually get closer to perfection, or better quality anyways. Professor Jerry Olsman learned this as he conducted a fun little experiment with his film photography students at the University of Florida. On the very first day of class, he divided the class into two random but evenly numbered groups. He then said one group would be graded entirely on quantity, while the other group would be graded entirely on quality. So one group would concentrate on taking as many pictures as they could, and the other would be more intentional about taking high-quality pictures every time. Essentially, one was tasked with a quantity task. The more pictures you take, the better grade you get. And the other was tasked with a quality task. Your one best photo is what you will be graded on. They only had to choose one photo to turn in and which would be their grade for the whole class. At the end of the term, it was clear that the best photos, hands down, were taken all from the quantity group. The students who just went around and took pictures like crazy. No pressure. They experimented. They tested. They learned. While the quality group essentially sat frozen, nitpicking over the idea of a perfect picture rather than just going out and taking pictures. Take more photos, do more reps, and not just because human life is more about process than perfection, but because we get closer to perfection rather than just waiting for perfection. This is crucial to developing a life of rest because this is how life works, as a spiral moving forward but always coming back to the things that matter. We need to practice it as a discipline because the curse is strong and works to overtake us if we aren't resisting. It's not a coincidence that the curse shows up in futile and endless work and production. Make more bricks is the endless, drone-like call of all of our hearts, and it has been that since the earliest stories of the Scripture. From the story of the Tower of Babel, where people wanted to build to reach God Himself, all the way to the opening chapter of the Exodus narrative, where it says the Egyptians ruthlessly, quote, made their lives bitter with hard service and made them work as slaves in mortar and in brick. Endless work, the same work, mindless work, back-breaking work. Make more bricks. Egypt was a taskmaster, beating the Israelites into submission, using them to build their own empire. Are we much different? Tired, overworked, overspent, overextended, usually from building another person's empire. A few chapters later in Scripture, as discipline for Moses' resistance, Israel was then tasked with keeping the quota of the bricks, but now without straw. Harder labor, but give us the same results. 
I always wonder what those first few moments in the desert and at Mount Sinai must have been like when God not only invited his people to rest, but commanded it over and against Egypt as a way to say, I am not that type of taskmaster. I am a covenant God of love and rest and delight. But how foreign must that have felt? They only knew slavery. They only knew backbreaking work, and they only knew ceaselessly producing more and more bricks. And then to hear the command that says, stop, cease, pause. We can easily romanticize that and think it must have felt good and full of life. And I'm sure it did for the people of God at some level. But I'm also sure they must have itched just a little, buzzed just a little, tapped their leg on that first Sabbath, almost longing to make bricks because that's all their muscles and hearts and brains knew to do. I know that because that's how it still is today, with us, in our family, and in our pursuit of Sabbath. We love Sabbath, and we practice it, and we live in it, and we delight in it, but I still itch. Usually around the 18th hour, I start itching to do something, to be important, to turn my phone back on and see what is really happening, see what I missed. Why do I start itching for my phone like clockwork on Saturday afternoons after it's been off for a day or so? In short, because I'm captured by it. We long for things we love. When I'm away from Alyssa, I long for her. It's not just about attention, but affection. And it's that battle that is the true fight of Sabbath. And what makes the Sabbath a day of resistance, where we put our stake in the ground and say, I'm not what I do. And man, it's hard when I have a deadline or an email that feels urgent. It's hard to believe that it can wait. It is not that important to believe that I can indulge in it, but risk a part of my soul. Because that's the journey God is taking all of us on. The same journey he took his people on in the desert. He rescued them from slavery, brought them out into the desert, and then spoke tenderly to them. He gave them a new way of life no longer brick makers, but Yahweh worshipers. It was no longer about doing, but about being. Not about activity, but identity. But let's not forget how many times the Israelites wanted to go back after Moses had led them out of slavery. They even said it was better in Egypt than with Yahweh in the desert. Why do we think we are any different? See, we need to steadily just put one foot in front of the other and learn how to dance with our creator in the desert, where he makes streams of water and shalom and rest flow to us and through us in renewal and refreshment, where he teaches us to be new people and where he gives us a new way of life.